You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome to a special edition of Big Picture Science, one whose format differs from the usual. Part of the program that follows was recorded in front of a live audience at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. Now, it takes a lot to get the Big Picture Science crew to exchange their 70-degree weather for a place where temperatures peak in the single digits, but this was an invitation to a 150th science anniversary and a chance to meet the listeners to Big Picture Science who hear it on local NPR affiliate WVPE. So Seth Shostak, Gary Niederhoff, and I, Molly Bentley, dug out our parkas and headed to South Bend, Indiana. Coming up, the show that we recorded there at the University of Notre Dame in February. The audience who trudged through the snow did so as part of a year-long commemoration of the 150th anniversary of the founding of the College of Science at Notre Dame. So in a moment, you'll hear from Notre Dame researchers how modern science is zooming ahead in the 21st century faster than a greased cheetah, for example, in the search for exoplanets, the mining of big data to solve big problems. But first, before you hear that, some time travel is in order. So let's get our head around science 150 years ago. Think back. Those of you who have been cryogenically preserved and defrosted, although we were all cryogenically preserved in chilly South Bend, and who actually remember the 19th century when the Queen of England was a young woman named Victoria, and think about the kind of scientific discoveries that were making news. For that, we turn to a great cheerleader for science in any era, John Durant, who happens to be an historian of science specializing in the Victorian period. He is also the director of the MIT Museum and a founder of the Cambridge Science Festival in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So Professor Durant is a science advocate for certain, but he says he would have found like-minded Englishmen and women in the mid-19th century, perhaps not as many as today, as science was still mainly an amateur pursuit and the term scientist still novel. But it was a time of rapid scientific discovery paralleling our own today. And it's only natural to ask the director of a museum associated with a school known for its achievements in technology whether scientific discovery was at all distinct from the technological innovation, the the flowering of the Industrial Revolution during the Victorian era. They were distinguishable, but then, like now, they were also very closely connected. So, yes, the 19th century thought of itself as the great area of what we would call innovation. Technological progress was a term that was widely used. People saw the Industrial Revolution and what it was doing, and everyday life was changing at least as fast through the Victorian period as it is today. I think in some ways it was changing faster. 
Can you give me an example of the kind of, if you will, revolutionary developments that were occurring during that time? Something that would affect me as a, you know, just a run-of-the-mill Londoner. And I guess run-of-the-mill is probably a result of the Industrial Revolution. Now that I think about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, run-of-the-mill comes straight out of the cotton mills, I suppose, of the early 19th century. Well, one thing that would affect you as a Londoner would be the hygienic conditions in London because things were getting rapidly worse in London in terms of public health and hygiene through the first part of the 19th century as the population grew. And they then began to improve after about 1860 with the introduction of radical new improved sewage systems for London, uh, a real revolution. Uh, among other things, they reduced the amount of chronic and acute infectious disease. The great cholera epidemics of the early 19th century began to be a thing of the past after about 1865. But another way you'd have been affected, it wouldn't just have been, as time went on, perhaps a little cleaner, but it also meant that you could get around the country in new ways. I mean, at the beginning of the 19th century, you really only had two choices. If you're going to get about, you either walked or you were wealthy enough to get on a horse or get in a carriage and be pulled by one. But of course, through the course of the 19th century, that changes and the railway one of the great engineering innovations uh, of the early 19th century transforms everyday life. It allows British people to go relatively easily to other parts of the country in ways that they could never have conceived of doing before, before the birth of the railway. Well, leaving aside for a moment here the engineering accomplishments, and I have to say I do that reluctantly because <laughs> isn't part Brunel was, you know, my great hero. Ah, oh, there you go. <laughs> Can you uh, say a little bit about the areas of science that were just maturing, just blossoming in the Victorian era? Well, I can, and it's almost a question of where to begin. So the same year that Victoria came to the throne, which was 1837, actually, and the Victorian age formally at least starts, Samuel Morse was developing the telegraph and the Morse code. Uh, your hero, uh, Eisenbad Kingdom Brunel, uh, launched his Great Western, the uh, first ocean-going steamship. But also, in the 1830s, we see a huge blossoming of, of what we today would definitely call sciences. So, for example, the, the disciplines that were concerned with understanding the Earth, what came to be called geology, were making very rapid progress in the first decades of the 19th century. And people were beginning to understand something about the tremendous changes the Earth has undergone through the course of time. So that's just one science that really comes into existence, uh, I would say, in the years around the start of the Victorian period. Did amateurs have a role in promoting that? Because I think that amateurs had found the bones of, well, fossilized animals uh, well before the Victorian era, but they didn't quite know what these things were. <laughs> yes, that is roughly speaking right. Certainly people had found what we now call fossils for many centuries before Actually, the, by about 1800, the leading thinkers in what was to become geology had already established to their own satisfaction that these were the remains of, uh, of animals. And in fact, the great French uh, naturalist Georges Cuvier established to most people's satisfaction the fact of extinction, that there had been animals on the earth once which were now no longer alive. That was established you know, around about 1800, just after. But your point about amateurs is an interesting one. I want to say yes and no to your question, were there amateurs involved in this? Yes, of course there were in, in, in an important sense. In fact, many of the people who contributed to these disciplines in the first half of the 19th century were not professional in the way that we would now think scientists are professional. They didn't earn a salary for doing the work they did. 
many of the people who did this work did it because they had independent means, the so-called gentleman naturalists. Darwin was never a professional scientist in that sense. Darwin never worked for anybody or any company. He was always a gentleman naturalist. He, he funded his own work as a man of independent means, and that was not uncommon at the time. So you're in a transition period there as professional science begins to get a foothold and to establish itself. Now, I am given to understand that when Darwin proposed his theory of evolution, based on these long voyages, what, two years in the Beagle or whatever it was going More around? More than that, but almost five. Almost five. Oh, longer than I thought. Well, I hope the food on board was good. He hated it. He hated all the voyaging. <laughs> he got seasick. And in fact, he spent as much time on land as he could, and, and I'm not quite sure how much, but something over half of all that voyage he actually spent on land, not on, not at sea. Thank goodness from his point of view. Yeah, I was going to, well, I would have done the same. But <laughs> but was there an appeal in this, this theory of evolution that had this sort of, it was this, you know, compelling logic about why animals are different and where they came from, it came from other animals and so forth. Did this especially appeal to the Victorian notion of order and progress? The Victorians were always trying to fix the world. It very much did. I mean, it's a two-sided coin, so many people were fearful of what they might discover, as it were, about the past, and we know there was a great deal of argument and conflict about evolution. On the other hand, many historians have pointed out that the 19th century is a century that really took the idea of history seriously. The historical sciences, as we now think of them, whether you're referring to astronomy or historical geology or evolutionary biology, or for that matter, something like uh, linguistics, the study of where different languages come from. These are all distinctively 19th century inventions. And, and there is a real sense that the notion that you explain things well by understanding where they come from, that's a very important idea for many Victorians. And of course, they were greatly comforted by this because there was a, a rather common assumption made, particularly, I have to say, in England, to the effect that whatever particular sequence of progress you were looking at, the English were standing on the top of it. You know, they were the latest and best of, of God's creation. I'm afraid that was a rather common assumption, which, looking back, uh, we can perhaps see in a different context. Well, what about that? Because America, presumably, at this time was perhaps too much in its infancy to contribute terribly much. But what about other parts of the world? I mean, England wasn't doing it all. Oh, not at all. Uh, and in fact, increasingly through the 19th century, the United States becomes a more significant player. But actually, if you're thinking globally in the Victorian period, you'd have to say that France and Germany, at least, were also very significant centers. In 1800, at the beginning of the 19th century, France is probably the single dominant scientific nation in the world. When many people think of science, uh, who are not particularly attuned to science, they're thinking of medicine and things like that. But, you know, the 19th century, that, that was the big turning point in medicine, wasn't it? I mean, it turned from some sort of black art to, to a science. <laughs> well, me yes, medicine is a, it, there's a great deal of development in what we would today call the biomedical sciences. In 1800, again, almost none of the elements of modern medical science, except perhaps medical anatomy, are in place in any kind of recognizable way. By 1900, you have uh, cell theory um, in biology and in medicine, so people understand that the fundamental organizational unit of living organisms, including ourselves, is the cell. That's a, a discovery of the 19th century. You have germ theory, which has transformed the understanding of many epidemic diseases. It took a long time to confirm the existence of invisible 
single-celled so-called microbes that could cause disease, but once they were understood, then at last doctors could begin to do something. The early origins of vaccination and many of the moves towards what we would call public health and public hygiene were inspired by germ theory once it was in place. John, how would the average Victorian have responded to these scientific discoveries? There, there's always somewhat of a, I don't know, there's a reaction, a kind of resistance to changes to lifestyle. And so much of this was leading to, to lifestyle changes. Were, were they generally pro-science? Were they anti-science? Or were they just agnostic? Well, I think the best way to answer that is actually to say I've often thought that the Victorians themselves, if you think about the mid-Victorian period, the period when Darwin and Huxley and others and Michael Faraday, we haven't mentioned him, were in their heyday, I think that period of life in the 1850s and 60s was a little like some periods of life in the United States in the mid-20th century. So what do I mean by that? Well, there was a great deal of underlying optimism about the benefits that would flow from new knowledge and the applications of new knowledge, a belief that, as we say, sometimes every day in every way things were getting better. But there were also anxieties brought on by that, that change in some areas was seen as being uncomfortably quick. You probably know that in the early days of the railway, there was speculation that it might not be possible for a human being to survive at speeds of beyond 30 miles an hour. There was always a frisson of nervousness and a worry about where some new discoveries would lead. But the belief in progress in both cultures, Britain in the 19th century, the United States in the 20th, is a very striking thing. The belief that it's worth investing, worth making sacrifices, worth committing to new discoveries and the applications of of those to improve the human condition. John Durant, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thank you. John Durant is a science historian, and he's the director of the MIT Museum in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. We've heard what areas of science were opening up a century and a half ago, and so now we go to contemporary South Bend, Indiana, and look at science today for our show, Big Picture Science, recorded there in front of a live audience at the gelid University of Notre Dame. The occasion was the year-long celebration of the 150th anniversary of the College of Science. And a program that we called Sesquicentennial Science. You can't pronounce it, but you're going to hear about it. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. X-N-A-S. This is Big Picture Science. I'm Molly Bentley. And now we go to the portion of the show recorded in front of a live audience at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome to Big Picture Science, a special show recorded in front of a live audience in the auditorium of the X Center here at the campus of the University of Notre Dame. 
Big Picture Science is pleased to have been invited to South Bend by the university uh, and by the College of Science and WVPE, the NPR affiliate serving the Michiana region right here in Indiana. The school is in the midst of a year-long celebration of 150 years of science, and as we present our show, sesquicentennial science, you can't pronounce it. But you're going to hear about it. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Yes, a century and a half ago, the University of Notre Dame established the College of Science and began educating the university's first scientists. Okay, that was 150 years ago, a sesquicentennial. But the pursuit of science itself is far older, of course. The ancient Greeks are said to have invented science. The word science comes from the Latin scientia, which means knowledge. And so you may know that knowledge is power, scientia potesta est. Well, while science has been around for a long time, the word scientist has not. It was coined only shortly before this university turned out its very first scientist. People who conducted science then were called natural philosophers or philosophers of science, but who had room for that on their business card. So in 1834 at Cambridge University, the historian and philosopher of science, William Hewell, wanted to find better nomenclature, a more useful term that would unite the various fields of science. And along the way, he considered and dismissed quite a few. Ah, good assistant. You're doing splendid work here in the lab. You've turned out to be quite the science implementer. Oh, thank you, Professor Hewell. Forgive me, but I've got a bit of a conundrum. I don't know what to call you. Well, my surname is Winthrop, my Christian name is Christian, and my mother always calls me Mr. Trouble Trousers. <laughs> Unless she's cross, and then she calls me... Uh, you know, good assistant will do just fine. Here you are, a stilling example of just how splendidly the pursuit of science has taken off, and in so many areas. Physics, chemistry, bacteriology... And yet we have no term with which to bind all these pursuits. What to call one who does science? Hmm, how about science doer? <laughs> we use philosopher of science and it serves, but is stodgy and outdated. Indeed, so 1760s. <laughs> Perhaps cultivator of science is catchier. It has a modern appeal. Hmm, cultivators of science. In a new study, cultivators of science now say disease is spread by germs and not by foul air. Cultivators of science now say chocolate is good for you. Doesn't really roll off the tongue. Yes, yes, agreed. Well, I did consider the term savant, but it sounds a bit... French. Well, I think technically it is. <laughs> and then my mind went to the continent and alit upon the Germanic Naturforscher. Commands respect and surely to be taken seriously. Naturforscher. Not a two of four share. Not too sure for sure. Not two for sure, only one for sure. I couldn't have another for... <clears throat> um, yes, well, why not work backwards, Professor Hewell? Begin with the suffix ist. After all, it means one or who that... Ah, yes, how deductive good assistant ist. As an economist, royalist, flautist. I beg your pardon? Uh, one who flouts. <laughs> Philatelist. No, no, that won't do. All of this is straying too far from science. Stamp collecting. It's only a hobby, indeed. But Ist also serves artists and is distinguished. Consider Leonardo da Vinci. He was a great artist who also practiced science. Hmm, scientist. I believe that will work. At least it goes on top of the list. 
Now what to call someone who makes lists? <laughs> Any ideas, Mr. Trouble Trousers? <laughs> And so we have William Huell to thank for the word scientist 180 years ago. And just one generation after it was coined, there were scientists at Notre Dame. We're going to look at two areas of research here, where the science is now and how much has changed in the last 150 years. We don't know whether or not we're alone in the universe, and we don't know whether there are other living organisms, microbial or brainy, elsewhere in the cosmos. We do know that the real estate possibilities for life are abundant. We now are able to detect other worlds, exoplanets, extrasolar planets orbiting around other stars, and some of these planets appear to be Earth-like. That there were other planets around other stars, well, 150 years ago, that was just a debatable topic. Then we had a more circumscribed picture of the cosmos. Journal of the Month's Astronomical Discoveries, February 1865. Let's see, um, oh, we spotted the Great Southern Comet, but I wrote about that in last month's entry. Not even an asteroid here to note. There's been nothing since Alchemini last fall and no major planetary discoveries since Neptune two decades ago. So eight planets and a handful of asteroids and comets, that rounds out the universe. Ah, these log entries are getting tedious. I should have gone into civil engineering like my cousin Isambard in London. That industrial revolution is gathering steam. Well, it's a good thing that the astronomers hung in there, because today we still may not know how many planets are in our solar system. After all, the status of Pluto is still under debate. But thanks to sophisticated technologies such as NASA's Kepler Space Telescope, our understanding of the universe has now expanded to include thousands of other planets orbiting alien stars, and the hint that one in five might be similar to Earth. A bottom line is that it now seems that the majority of stars have planets. So if you do the math and you take 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, how many have the potential to be habitable, audience? Too tough. <laughs> Maybe Justin, one in five, if you start with, I'm putting him on the spot. 200 billion stars, one in five. 40 billion have the, potential, have, <laughs> have the potential to be habitable, that's correct. Well, Justin Krepp is an astrophysicist here at Notre Dame who is hunting for those extrasolar planets and was one of the scientists who used the Kepler Space Telescope to discover the planet Kepler-186f last spring. This made big news because the planet was the first Earth-sized planet deemed to be in the habitable zone of its star. Since last year's discovery of 186F, the Space Telescope has revealed other potentially habitable extrasolar planets. Professor Krepp is here to tell us what those numbers mean in the search for life elsewhere in the universe, and also what technologies are in the works that might help us find those worlds where biology might thrive. Hi, Justin, welcome. Thanks for having me. Justin, why is it that the hunt for extrasolar planets is such a hot field right now? Well, right now we're, we're starting to answer age-old questions uh, that we've been pondering you know, for, for many thousands of years. And we've got, we can quantify uh, some, some of the answers to these. We can 
uh, figure out the statistics of exoplanets. We don't have to guess anymore. We, we know the answers uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, thanks to recent measurement. Where are these planets, Justin? I mean, typically, are they nearby? Are they on the other side of the Milky Way? Where are they? Where are they not? <laughs> they're, they're pretty much everywhere. They satisfy every uh, kind of niche. Uh, everywhere we look, we seem to find planets close to stars, a little bit further away. Even with other technologies, we can search really far away from stars. We can actually image a few of them, and those have been detected at distances that we didn't expect. And so they're pretty much everywhere. We know that they're hundreds of light years away. That's where Kepler uh, spacecraft is very sensitive. And uh, we can extrapolate from there with confidence that basically the galaxy is brimming over with these worlds. Now, one of the goals of Kepler, maybe the goal of Kepler, was to find planets that are Earth-like, right? Cousins of the Earth, if you will. I assume that these planets would resemble the Earth somewhat more than my cousins resemble me. But when we say that it's Earth-like, what, what do we really mean by that? Right, so Kepler was designed to find things down to the size of the Earth. And so what we know and what we can tell so far is the size of the planet. We can tell the radius. We can figure out how big of a shadow it casts on its star. Um, and we can also figure out the orbital period of the planet. And in a number of cases, if the star is close enough, that's the ideal case, then we can start to figure out more about the orbit and we can potentially constrain the mass and density and figure out what it's made out of. But, but we don't actually see these things. We can't say whether they have continents or clouds or anything like no, that. No, the only directly imaged planets are super Jupiters, and they're really far away from their bright, glaring star. And so the, the technology that's really exciting right now is uh, the transit method in which we actually find the planets closer to their star. A number of them are about the size of the Earth. So you mentioned the, the transit method. Can you just mm -hmm. describe... Um, right. The transit method? Right. So uh, you measure the brightness of a star in time. And if you're at just the right orientation and uh, a planet happens to pass in front of the star, it will block some of that light. And you can actually measure that decrease in time. If the signal is periodic, you can then infer the presence of the planet. And so we look at you know, many thousands of stars at the same time and measure their brightness. So you're just see. waiting for a star to get dimmer because a planet has passed in front of it. That's right. Yeah. I'm curious if the analogy that I've heard sometimes is accurate, and that's if you have a moth flying in front of a, a spotlight or something mm -hmm. like that. If you had one of those big spotlights, you know, when they announce new car deals or something. <laughs> Right. And you had a moth fly in front of it. Is the amount of dimming of that spotlight about the amount yeah, that you find yeah, in these stars? Is that analogy? Yeah, there's work? a lot of analogies, and that one works. It's about one part in ten to the five, so one part in a hundred thousand. Our best spacecraft, the Kepler spacecraft in particular, can measure that decrement and flux at unprecedented levels, and that is the leap in technology that allowed this huge onslaught of recent discoveries. Let me get back to Kepler-186f, which was in the news quite a bit about a year ago because this was the first one that was found that was more or less the right size. It was more or less the same size as the Earth. It looked like it was in the habitable zone. Uh, what does that mean? Does that, I mean, you know, you might say South Bend, Indiana is not in the habitable zone. <laughs> what, what, what does that mean? Now, most of the year we're in the habitable zone. Um, so Kepler-186f is, is about at the orbit of Mercury, which is ironic 
uh, but its star is a small star, and so it doesn't give off as much light. And so for that star, it is smack dab in the middle of the habitable zone. Uh, that planetary system also happens to have four other planets that are nestled in even closer than the orbit of Mercury, even closer than 186F, and they're too hot. Okay, so 186F is special because it's about the size of the Earth, and it's in the habitable zone around a very common type of star. So when we say habitable zone, that means it has the potential for life. It doesn't mean that you've discovered life, because I'm sure you'd let us know. Right. But it means that the conditions could be right for life to exist there. That's right. The, the assuming uh, various things about the atmosphere of the planet, naively thinking that it looks like Earth or just doing a simple energy balance, the temperature could be clement. It could be reasonable. Uh, we don't know exactly that temperature, but we do know that the conditions are ripe for the possible formation of life as we know it. There's a lot of qualifiers in that statement. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Kepler 186F, it's like getting a winning lottery ticket in a way. But the question is, what fraction of lottery tickets are winners, right? Okay, there's, there's a case of a planet that's more or less the same size as Earth. It's the right temperature range to maybe have liquid oceans, maybe some critters, who knows? But what, what fraction of planets right. do you think fall into that right. category? So you, you've got to roll the dice, uh, but you get a lot of chances to roll the dice because there are so many stars, right? So you could have a planet that's too hot, too cold, one in the habitable zone, and then it has to be the right size. Does it have an atmosphere? And so uh, you, you roll the dice many times, but you get lots of dice. And so the fraction is, is something like 20% for sun-like stars of having a planet that's not only the size of the Earth, but in the right place to possibly have this uh, nice temperature. And then, this is very interesting, as you go to different types of stars, as you go to cooler stars, smaller stars, stars that we call M stars, they're actually more common in the galaxy, and it turns out they have a propensity to form small, terrestrial, possibly rocky planets that could resemble our own. And so it's 20% and, and up. E.T. lives around a dwarf star. Possibly, quite possibly. <laughs> You're going to have some reporter run out and say, the astronomer just said that E.T. is living around a, a dwarf star. We don't actually know that. <laughs> so when you're sitting around with your, uh, your friends, your astronomy friends, and you're talking about another astrobiologist, what life might look like on one of these planets? What form it might take? Just what is the range that it could be? I know I mentioned earlier microbial or brainy, mm -hmm. but can you give us a picture of just what you think? Would it be in an ocean? Would it be sitting? Would it be a microbe? What might it be? I'm going to totally speculate here and say that uh, the aliens have an even number of limbs. That is uh, not awkward. And they may even have some of them that are available to build tools. Those are maybe the ones that uh, we could possibly communicate. That's an optimistic case of, you know, if I just totally speculate on what intelligent alien life might look like uh, modulo evolution. So you, you went right to the other end of the, of the, I I'm mean, the spectrum. I'm okay, yeah. so you're not talking about the microbes might have even I, number I think, of limbs. I, I think that cockroaches are very common <laughs> across the okay. galaxy, so and that sometimes uh, in the, under the right conditions for a very long period of time, maybe you could have intelligent life, and it's kind of fun to think about what that would look like. I, you know, you've ruled out starfish. Right? They have, I have, they have five I have, limbs. I, I, mean, I have not. <laughs> I said, okay, most of them. <laughs> You're insisting on bilateral symmetry. Well, okay, 
so here's, here's the big question then, Justin. We're finding lots of planets. We found, how, how many planets have we found that deserve the term habitable, where, you know, I don't know, real estate developers right. can go and build condos on them? What, right. what, what number is that? Right. Uh, it's, it's several dozen now. Okay. It's, several it's, dozen. It's, it's, it's growing. I, I hesitate to even give a number now because it's hard to keep up with the literature how fast uh, these, these are coming. So that's why it's so exciting. So when are we going to be able to actually inspect some of these planets and see whether they really do have, for example, liquid oceans or an atmosphere or something like that. We're going to take a big step in about four years here when NASA launches uh, the successor to Kepler, which is the TESS space mission. So TESS is exciting because it's a wide field version of Kepler. It's going to look at the closest stars to find the closest planets. And that is essential because those stars are bright enough that we can actually study the planets in some detail. For example, with the transit method, we want to be able to see the light pass through the atmosphere, the thin sliver of atmosphere of the planet, and it will leave an imprint of what the, the spectrum will look like. And then from that measurement, we can try to infer the properties of the atmosphere of, of these worlds. They have to be nearby, and that's what TESS is going to provide in, in a few years from now. That's incredible. I just want to give the audience a chance to be thinking about what questions you'd like to ask Justin because we're going to turn it over to you in a moment. Finally, Justin, you know, if you had to contrast uh, being an astronomer at Notre Dame today with being one 150 years ago, what would you say to that? I mean, they didn't know anything about planets around other stars. In fact, they weren't sure they might be out there. Well, the class sizes are a lot larger than they were back then. We were using puny telescopes back then. And we have now launched puny telescopes into space and learned profound things. We also have giant telescopes from the ground, and they keep growing. And so I think what's exciting and comparing and contrasting those two is just the technology uh, and the, the rapid pace of development. That's what I, I really love is just being on the, the cutting edge and, and seeing, you know, building things with your hands and, 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 and making it work in the lab and then bringing it to the telescope. And so those are the things that, that are in common that people were, were building things back then, but our ideas are more grandiose and, and they get bigger and better every day. These are the best of times. Yes. Justin Krepp, thank you so very much for being with us. Thank you. Okay, so now it's time for the audience. If you'd like to ask any questions of Justin, please give the name of the guy sitting next to you. No, give your first name. Ask your question. Hi, my name is Reggie. Uh, great presentation. You mentioned the habitable zone that we look for in other uh, areas. But in our own solar system, do we only consider Earth to be in the habitable zone? Or do we consider maybe the possibility of the habitable zone, including areas such as Mars, since we're currently looking there for signs of life as well? Right. Venus and Mars are not too far off. Uh, you know, when you do a calculation of the habitable zone and Earth's not in it, you did something wrong. <laughs> so it depends on who you ask. It depends on what kind of chemistry you include in the atmosphere. And it's a vague distance on either side. And it also depends on how bright the star is. The width actually grows. So in time, as the sun evolves off the main sequence, the width of the habitable zone is going to grow as it moves out. So Earth's going to get really hot and the habitable zone is going to move. But that's five billion years from now. So don't worry about it. <laughs> I'm Bridget, and you said like finding cockroaches compared to finding intelligent life, like what would be considered intelligent life? And if you did find intelligent life, what would be like the next step, I guess? Right, right. Great so question. Do, you, do you consider humans intelligent? <laughs> um, uh, 
maybe. <laughs> right. So um, if we define intelligent as being humans and, and, and drawing the line at dolphins or, or somewhere around there, um, I think the next step is playing a slow chess game as maybe the movie Contact or, or something like that. Uh, we cannot travel to these places in any reasonable amount of time, but uh, we, we travel like 1% the speed of light, so that's a little bit too slow, uh, too many generations of humans out in space. But light travels at the speed of light. And so we can actually use, uh, this is what Seth studies on a daily basis, we can transmit signals, and, and, and that's kind of the next next step. And so we're just trying to take... Uh, baby steps to answering what kind of planets are out there, what are their masses and radius and all these other parameters, their physical properties, do they have an atmosphere, does it seem like a nice place, and we're trying to learn as much as we can from a very far distance. That's why astronomy is such a pure science, because we can't influence the experiment, right? It's really far away. I can give you an operational definition that we use at SETI for intelligent. If you can build a radio transmitter you're intelligent. So ask the person sitting next to you, hey, can you build a radio transmitter? <laughs> <laughs> okay, just one last question on this side, perhaps. Quick one. Uh, my name is Tom. And how do you take the temperature of, uh, of one of these planets to see if it's frozen or if it's evaporated? And if you do find one of these planets that is inhabitable, uh, how do you know it's still there if it's, you know, with the speed of light and so forth? Maybe right, it right, vanished right. thousands of years ago. So first we guesstimate the temperature of, of the planet uh, by just figuring out where it is in its orbit uh, on average. Uh, if we can somehow study the atmosphere, if we can isolate the light from the star, the very bright star, which is billions of times brighter than the planet, at least at visible wavelengths. If we can image the planet and get a spectrum, or if it just so happens to transit, and we can take a spectrum through that event, then we can directly probe the atmosphere, and we have advanced theoretical models that will estimate the effective temperature from those measurements. But otherwise, we have to just estimate it doing basic energy balance. Energy in equals energy out, and, and you can figure out a temperature roughly from that which you can trust to maybe a factor of two or something until you really start to dive into the details of, of the chemistry of that atmosphere, which is largely unknown now, and, and that's why TESS is so exciting because it's going to find the planets that are close so that we can actually take those measurements directly of the atmosphere. It sounds like it follows some of the guidelines for basic diets, energy in equals energy out. <laughs> if you want to lose weight, that's what you need to do. Justin, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you to the audience, too, for your great questions. So... Thanks to the University of Notre Dame astrophysicist Justin Krepp. Our show here is at the auditorium at the X Center, and it will continue in a moment. Can big data solve big scientific challenges? You're listening to Big Picture Science, recorded in front of a live and lively audience at the University of Notre Dame as part of the celebration of 150 years of science at the College of Science. It's sesquicentennial science. You can't pronounce it but you're going to hear about it. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, 
with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to Big Picture Science. And that restless hubbub you may hear in the background is because this room is full of restless biomass. <laughs> and audiences, come out to the X Center at the University of Notre Dame tonight so that we could record this show in front of them. Thank you again, audience, for joining us. Big Picture Science is pleased to have been invited to South Bend by the university and by WVPE, the NPR affiliate that airs our show. It's all part of Notre Dame's year-long celebration of 150 years of science. A century and a half ago, the university established the College of Science, and one could begin to work toward a degree in science. And so we continue with the program Sesquicentennial Science. You can't pronounce it. But you're going to hear about it. We're looking at current science within the context of how it's changed. Now, we've talked about astronomy and the hunt for extrasolar planets. That's right. To recap, 20 years ago, not a single planet around another star was known. 20 years ago. We've now discovered more than 1,000 planets, and there are thousands of additional planetary candidates found orbiting other suns. This fire hose of discovery, of course, has taken exoplanet research into the rarefied and trendy realm of big data, data, data. <laughs> a massive volume of processed and raw data so large that it's difficult to analyze using traditional techniques. But what's really new about this, after all? I mean, in a way, we had big data 150 years ago. That's fascinating, Charles. Who knew that passenger pigeons were so abundant in America? Ask me another, Rosalind. With 21 volumes of Encyclopedia Britannica, big data tis at our fingertips. Ours was printed just five years ago, so it is wonderfully up to date. How thrilling. Well, here's another stumper about America. Who founded the University of Notre Dame, and when? Good one. Let's see. It says here, at the age of 28, at the onset of an exceptionally rigorous winter in Indiana, Father Edward Soren began the foundation of Notre Dame in November 1842. That was less than 20 years ago, and here it is, already in print. Hmm, does it say what a flautist does? You know, I've always wondered. I'll look that up later, Rosalind. I've just realized that it's half three, and I'm behind on my reading. My goal is to get through every entry before the end of this year. I'm keen to get to it, as I'm about to read about William Thompson's entry on electricity and the telegraph. Tis remarkable to have such a comprehensive collection of data in one place. Well, big data has grown since then. And Nitesh Chawla sees great possibilities for it in many areas, from healthcare to climate science. Nitesh is an associate professor of computer science and engineering and director of the Interdisciplinary Center for Network Sciences and Applications at Notre Dame. Must have a five by seven business card. <laughs> and, and, and he can put big data into the big picture. Nitesh, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me. Nitesh, let's begin with a description of how big data is or is not like a set of encyclopedias. I mean, a full set does hold a lot of information. So, so what is big data? Let's Google that. 
So why big data is not a set of encyclopedia, it is because all the, all the volumes of information that we are producing on a daily basis, just all of us in the room today, whether we put information on social media, whether we publish manuscripts, whether we share our health data, we are producing snippets of information, which could be knowledge, which could be big data, in very diverse forms. Do, how, how do you see the future of this going? I mean, I, you know, I have a cell phone. I could be connected to any data set in the world if somebody allowed that. And, and does that mean that I can be, you know, a citizen scientist, as it were, and, and find correlations between, I don't know, liver disease and eating Brussels sprouts? It starts with a question, right? It starts with what do you want to ask? If you're curious about it, and if you have access to the right tools and technology, which makes access to the data easier, which makes discovery of knowledge or information from data easier, then it can be done. We're talking about cloud computing. We're talking about, you know, computing is no longer an issue, you know, in terms of the, how cheap it's become. If we can enable access to those resources, then why not? So we're talking very generally right now. I wonder if we could get into some specifics. And this is, has to do with President Obama's initiative on this genetic data bank, because I think it gets at the question of whether or not we want all this data out there, because a lot of it is quite personal. And he's proposed a medical initiative that would center on a huge data bank, a biobank. And so you'd have all the medical records and the genetic information of a million Americans. And one of the questions it raises, doesn't it, is do we want all our information out there? Do we have a choice in the matter? And aren't there concerns about privacy, for one, when you have all your information out there in the cloud? And, and so how do you address that, and how do you safeguard all that information? So I'm act I actually applaud that initiative by President Obama to, uh, you know, you put out $215 million towards physician medicine, which would sort of go down to the molecular level of diseases and really help us understand, uh, you know, in what personalized therapies in some way, which is not that for each person there's going to be an invention of a device or, or, or a pill, but individuals who share certain characteristics could be provided the prescription or therapy from that. Uh, so it's in the right direction. And why I'm actually quite excited by that is, yes, it's going to have an impact on medicine, a very positive impact. It's going to be multiple years, but it will have an impact on personalized medicine, precision medicine. It will have an impact all the way down to our understanding to the molecular level of diseases. But it will also have an impact in computational disciplines as well. We have to now think about if every if a million people, their genome produced by a sequence analyzer is going to be published, it all has to be stored and managed. We can't be shipping hard drives with all that data. So how do we create an infrastructure to enable access to that kind of a data? And then more importantly, how do we create a privacy and ethics governance around this data? Also raises the question of whether or not we want to know always what's in our genome and so forth and what's up ahead maybe ahead for us. Uh, but one thing that may be ahead for us is some change in our climate. And I know that we, we, I think we need to be somewhat brief on this, but this is another area where big data um, may have big solutions, may not. But I wonder if you could give us just an idea, an overview of how big data may address one of the biggest problems facing us now. Yes, so at Notre Dame, we have the Notre Dame Global Adaptation Index, and again, and, and as part of that index, what we have so far focused on is helping inform adaptation plans, whether it's at the urban level or the country level, and engage in a dialogue. So and how to adapt, how we might adapt to climate change. How we might adapt to, change, to changing climate. Uh, and uh, we were able to pull all the data together and identify the vulnerability a country may face to climate change, 
And so what we learned that could be put to practical uses is our understanding of what's driving what sectors, whether it's infrastructure, food, health, that's making a country more vulnerable or less vulnerable to climate change. And what investments could be, where, where are the risks, whether economic readiness or social readiness or, or political readiness, where the risks are for intake of that investment to be prepared for future. Nitesh Chala is an associate professor of computer science and engineering and director of the Interdisciplinary Center for Network Sciences and Applications here at Notre Dame. And now that we're done grilling them like a uh, mess of onions, it's the audience's turn. Hi, I'm Jennifer, and I had a quick question about availability of data. I, I assume it's changing in terms of big data. It's changing all the time what data are available. And I was wondering what um, sector or area you think if researchers like you or others had, a, had access to those data, you could solve some grand challenge. Where, where are the sort of roadblocks or, or walls for data accessibility? So the data accessibility roadblocks largely come when there's human subjects data involved. Right? That's where the biggest roadblock is, when there's a human data element to it. And the bigger challenge as an academic that I face is, access to data which is sitting with bigger corporations who may or may not be willing to share data. So whether it's trying to understand massive social networks, right, or whether to understand how search happens, or whether to understand how indexing happens. And, but a lot of other data is available in open data sources as well. So I applaud the cities and the countries who are committing themselves to the open data movement, for example. But then again, the challenge is what are we going to do with the data? What questions are we going to ask? So there are, within scientific disciplines, opportunities to get data, and the data is available sitting in those disciplines, even in humanities. For example, we talked about with my colleagues in humanities and looking at different peace accords, and all the data is sitting is in structured, unstructured text. Can we call all that information together and say what makes peace accords work or successful? Right? So simple question like that, but we can get all that data and it's all public information, those peace accords. Right? So I'm a data scientist, I get excited by the problems, and I, I, you know, I'm also a data geek, and I say I fall in love with data every day. But I get interest, excited by what algorithms we can develop, what frameworks we can develop, what tools we can develop to enable my multidisciplinary colleagues to get their pursuit of answers. So I think we'll leave it there, but it's nice to leave on the idea of perhaps developing more peace accords. So that's a nice way yeah. to end it. Thank <laughs> you, Nitesh. And Thank every, you. And everyone falling in love with data. They didn't do that on Star Trek. <laughs> Natish Chalala, thank you. Thank you so much. We've learned a lot from our guests tonight. One of the things that strikes me that's different with 150 years ago in terms of science is that science is a cumulative endeavor. Uh, you know, not all human endeavors are cumulative. Poetry, for example. I mean, you could read a poem from 150 years ago, you could read a poem from today, you could swap them, and it would be very hard to tell. It isn't that somehow the poems of today have built on that poem to get to where they are today. Whereas if you looked at the, the science of exoplanets, for example, today, you would not mistake that for the science of exoplanets 150 years ago. And a lot of that is due, of course, to the fact that we have more scientists alive today than ever before. I think like one out of five or one out of 10, some number comparable to the number of habitable planets, some fraction is, is alive today. But beyond that, the fact that we have the instrumentation to make the measurements and we have the computing technology that allows us to, to, to actually sift through all these data, those are things that have changed. And that's why science is accelerating, which personally I think is a good thing. Thanks to our team, the wildly talented 
Gary Niederhoff for being with us tonight in Indiana. And to Barbara Vance, keeping things running back home in snow-free California. Also, thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, whose scientists investigate the origin and nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners out there in radio and podcast land and those here in South Bend who have braved the temperatures outside to sit in this heated room to attend tonight's live program. A big thanks to the University of Notre Dame and WVPE, the NPR affiliate that serves the Michiana region and that airs our show, for their invitation to us to be here tonight. Were it not for them, we would be fighting the freeway traffic and donning the lightest of sweaters to go outdoors back in California <laughs> and not here to celebrate the 150th anniversary of science at Notre Dame. While the origin of the name zebra is unknown, it may come from the Latin equiferous, meaning wild horse. Ah, that's it. All 21 volumes of the 8th edition. What an accomplishment. Charles, dear, I meant to tell you. A man came around yesterday selling your Encyclopedia's 9th edition just published. As a surprise for you, I bought them. All 24 volumes will be delivered this afternoon. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.